Hello, and welcome back to Tales from Wisteria Lane. I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And you're listening to the podcast where we give you a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. And we're the boyfriends. We are. So, if you're new to this, we break down an episode at a time, and today we're doing Season 3, Episode 10, The Miracle Song. We are. I'm going to be breaking down the episode piece by piece, and Joel's going to be giving us some fun facts and trivia. Do you have anything to start us off with? I do. So, this episode was written by Bob Daly and directed by Larry Shaw, and it aired on November 26th, 2006, and the title screens were apparently cut due to time, but actually, they were just shortened. They weren't cut. The episode title, The Miracle Song, is taken from a song from the Stephen Sondheim musical Anyone Can Whistle, and the episode, upon original US airing, attracted 21.4 million viewers. There's a musical called Anyone Can Whistle? Yes. Well, except Peppa Pig. So, this is the first episode of the series to officially be set at Christmas time, although there's been sort of references previously to Christmas, you know, when Zach Young broke into Bruce's house and he started wittering on about a Christmas tree or some shit. So there have been references, but this is the first time it's officially been set. There are a few international titles that I think are quite fun and quirky. The French one translates to Time of Miracles, <laughs> which sounds like a really cheesy Doctor Who episode. Yep. Um, and the Italian and Polish translate to Christmas at Wisteria Lane. I like that. Which is quite cute. I think that's fun. So as you may or may not know already, uh, Sherry, who's one of the young girls that's in the um, pageant class with... Gabby and Vern, is played by Chloe Grace Moretz. Yes, I did notice that. Uh, this was back in her early career years, and Chloe is now known for voicing Young Penny and Bolt, Amateurville Horror, The Carrie Remake, Kick-Ass, and Suspiria, to name just, like, a few of her, like, bigger films. Chloe Moretz is in Bolt? Yeah, she voices Young Penny. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mark Delkin, who plays the sexy dad of the episode... Um, has been in several bands in his life. Rampage, which was his first one, which he made in seventh grade, um, and then Paradox in high school, and finally Big Wednesday in college. He then realised he was not meant for the music industry, and he is now an actor and fight director, working on Broadway, off-Broadway, as well as TV and film. That's a strange career trajectory right there. It is. I mean, he also used to work for Greenpeace, and he used to be a jazz pianist in a bar in Vienna. Cool. So he has, like, gone all over the place doing shit. Big Wednesday's a cool band name. Is it? It's quirky. Yeah, I mean, it is quirky. But what's so big about Wednesday? I don't know. I haven't seen them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Jennifer Dundas, who plays Rebecca, Art's sister, uh, began as a child actress and worked alongside people like Sally Field and Meryl Streep, and is best known for playing Diane Keaton's lesbian daughter in The First Wives Club. In 2007, she went on hiatus from acting to launch Brooklyn-based Blue Marble Organic Ice Cream, and in 10 years, she built the company from one small storefront to a multi-million dollar brand available on grocery shelves in over 15 states in the US. I was going to say, I haven't actually heard of it. No, it's a US company. Um, She also co-launched a non-profit, Blue Marble Dreams, whose mission is to provide jobs for unemployed women and a safe, happy space for communities in traumatized regions. The first shop in Zozi Nidziza opened in Rwanda in 2010, and a second location, Belrev, opened in Port-au-Prince, Haiti in 2015. So a little applause for Jennifer Dundas for doing things for the community. We'd like mm. to point that out from the, you know, actresses and guest stars when they come along. Yeah, what a queen. Which is a, a tradition that B started, really, with some of his um, trivia on guest stars that we have. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, this episode at the very beginning sees... Uh, the residents of Rosteria Lane reacting quite shockingly to a Santa. And so I thought I'd do a little bit of research to look into problematic Santas. And it turns out the women actually have 
reason to behave the way they do when they see Santas. And there have been several killer Santas throughout real life. Research from what I did, I could see that the first recorded instance was back in 2008. So skip this bit of trivia, guys, because it can get a little bit dark. So if you don't want to <laughs> hear it, skip it. On December 24th, obviously, because who would question? Um, he arrived at his ex-wife's house, who was having a Christmas party, with a gift in one hand and a gun in the other. He shot a nine-year-old girl in the face. She survived and shot several other guests and unwrapped the present to show a homemade flamethrower and he burnt the house to the ground. Oh my. Nine people were killed, including his ex-wife, her parents and siblings, and he then shot himself. And rumour has it that he chose to dress as Santa as his wife's family had a tradition that a neighbour would always dress up as Santa to come to their parties. How did the little girl survive? I don't know. That's crazy. Just said that she managed to survive. Another was in 2011, uh, when, once again, man came over to his ex-wife's on Christmas Day and shot her and her relatives and their two teenage children. Apparently, he and his wife broke up the year before, and they were killed as they were opening presents. <laughs> One of his daughters, I love this bit, I know I shouldn't, but I love this bit. One of his daughters apparently texted her friend shortly before, complaining that her dad was here trying to win father of the year. <laughs> oh. And the dad had been unemployed for 10 years and was apparently jealous of the wife's solo success. Oh, damn. Apparently. Obviously, this is just brief research I've done, so don't take this as, you know, official information as to why these things happened. So there is grounds for for concern when we see a Santa. Not all Santas are friendly, guys. I mean, that's crazy. (laughs) But the amount of killer Santas there are in comparison to killer clowns that we've seen (laughs) over the past few years, at least, it's still quite a minute number. Well, yeah, killer clowns was a big craze. It was many years ago. A real big craze. It was all over the news. Killer Santas, I don't think I've seen so much. At all. Until I did my research, really. Anyway, that's my trivia. Okay, let's get into it then. Previously, Orson's wife, Alma, went missing. Gabby found her next venture, teaching little girls to model and find confidence. A new neighbour, Art, moved onto Wisteria Lane, and Lynette found his cellar full of, um... Knickknacks. Bad pictures. Yeah. Gloria dished out Orson's secrets that he cheated on Alma with Monique. And Detective Ridley caught Mike burying his toolbox. Which is not a euphemism. A shame, really. <laughs> a real shame. So, there's an annual block party on Mysteria Lane. Apparently it's a winter tradition to spread cheer and everyone's invited, including Art. A winter tradition that we have not seen for the first two seasons. We cut to Karen telling Edie all about Art, and then Carlos telling Mike, and finally Austin telling Julie. So, word about Art has gotten around. It's spread. We then cut to the block party and it's really cute. Everyone looks super happy until Art shows up dressed as Father Christmas. We call him Father Christmas in the UK, but you can call, we can also call him Santa. Yeah. It is what it is. And he announces his presence with a ho, ho, ho. And suddenly it gets super awkward. No one is responding to anything he says. And it becomes apparent that something is wrong when a woman stops her child from running up to him. So he leaves with his sister, not before exchanging a quick glance with Lynette though. I mean, how are you supposed to explain to the kids at this Christmas party that this Santa is a pedo? Santa's a pedo tonight, so don't go up to him. You just have to be really honest with kids with things like this. When they're like, why can't I see Father Christmas? You just say, because he's a pedo. (laughs) Because he's a pedo. And also, he's clearly someone that doesn't put his beard on until he's in eyeline of the kids. Oh, yes, the illusion is shattered. Way to break the illusion, girl. Come on, Art. You see, if he had put his beard on before he got to the party, no one would have known it was Art. And everything would have been fine for him. I don't know. I feel like the disabled elf right by his side would have given it away a little bit. Right? I mean, props to Wisteria Lane for giving us the first disabled elf on TV. Yes. Probably. That's not a fact. I was just joking, guys. I mean, as far as we're aware. We've not seen seen anything else. But if you have and you are aware, let us know. That would be cool. That would be cool. 
We then have the partial title sequence and we cut to Susan. Everyone's pulling out their Christmas decorations, including Susan and Ian, who kiss underneath some mistletoe. And then Ian tells Susan that his parents are coming down and he wants her to meet them, which she is delighted about. Until Ian says that it would be nice if they came to Susan's house for a home-cooked meal. And Susan basically just comes out as a bad cook. I don't know if she has to come out. Right. I have something to say. I can't cook. Uh, Me to you when we first met. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I guess it's a good thing we've got Ian because it deflects from all of the problems I keep having with Tom recently. But I've got another problem with Ian. How dare he invite Susan to meet his parents and then be like, great, you can cook for them. As soon as she says yes. The cheek, the nerve, the audacity, the gall and the gumption... It's just a weird situation. I want you to meet my parents and it's important that I'm with a homey woman for them. So you have to cook for them when you first meet them. It was just the way he went about it. Oh, I was wondering if you wanted to meet my parents. And she's like, oh, as in your parents know about me? Like, they know, like I'm, I'm a thing to them. And he's like, oh, yes. Oh, yeah, I'd love to meet your parents. Great. You're cooking. It's just so rude. That would never happen here. If someone said to me, you need to cook for my parents. It's important for them that you're a good cook. I'd be like, well, I'm not. If I was Susan, that is. Like, I'm not, and that's who I am. If I was Susan, I'd be like, Ian, you can tell your parents to sod off, because this isn't the 1950s anymore. Yeah. Like, if we want to order takeout, because I can't cook for shit, they can love it or shove it. But how does making a home-cooked meal show I care any more than anything else I do? You're visiting Wisteria Lane. You're in a new place. Maybe try some local cuisine. Right. But in Ian's defence, a roast isn't actually very hard. Um... He did turn to Susan and was like, a simple roast is fine. They're not going to be expecting a gourmet meal. But no. a roast isn't too hard to cook. A roast isn't exactly a difficult meal to cook, but there are a lot of timings that you have to get right. Yeah. Especially when you're not a vegetarian. And what we've learned about in this episode of Desperate Housewives is Susan's timings are not very good. Well, no, of course not. So when Ian says that it's a simple roast, I thought a a simple roast is probably mathematically quite complicated for anyone that hasn't cooked very often. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Susan Susan can't even do macaroni and cheese. How is Susan going to get down the basics of cooking a roast? She's going to have to put in the meat for a certain time, boil the potatoes, roast the potatoes, and handle the vegetables and the Yorkshires all at different times. Hey, in... Susan's defence, or in Susan's defence, in Ian's defence, sorry, I didn't cook that much, and one of my first meals that I have made was a Christmas dinner, <laughs> and I got it fucking banging. Except I did miss the stuffing, and my ex was livid about it, but whatever. <laughs> he was livid? He was so, so disappointed, because I forgot the stuffing. Everything else was there. Every single thing was there, and I forgot the stuffing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I was probably too busy dealing with the 50 other ingredients that I'm right. juggling around in this kitchen cooking for my for my mum for me for him and his parents for his parents to cancel and my mum to cancel gosh and christmas is a lot of extra ingredients on top of the roast already yeah that was a long tangent that was a long tangent <laughs> anyway moving on guys so gabby and Vern are judging the girls on their runway walks and apparently sherry played by little chloe grace moretz is doing a great job but amy sucks and gabby decides that they should can amy and showcase sherry's talents yeah pretty much very much. I mean, I'll do it. Sounds like fun. Running a pageant consultancy firm and then you're just like firing kids left, right and centre. I volunteer as tribute for that. <laughs> right. You haven't got it, honey. <laughs> do you know what it is? Well, you haven't got it. Maybe she just doesn't have a good teacher. Maybe she doesn't have a good teacher. Maybe it's Vern and Gabby. You know, a student's only as good as their master. Exactly. Brie brings Gloria her breakfast, which she says that she'll pick through later. <laughs> <laughs> She's a mood in every scene. It's one way to kill time while you're waiting for death. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and yeah, Gloria's watching home movies. Yeah. She then leads the conversation by prying into Bree's business and asking about if she's going to divorce Orson, but Bree is reluctant to talk about this. Gloria then insists that Bree will get over the love she feels for Orson, as she already has, and we cut to a shot of the home movie, which shows Gloria and Alma having a gay old time with some Christmas decorations, and Orson looking bored as hell behind them. He, looks, he does not look happy. No, but it looks like Gloria and Alma were really close. Yeah, Gloria clearly loved and had a great relationship with Alma. And Orson should be so lucky to, you know, be with someone that actually gets along with his, his you know, parents. It mm. doesn't always happen. And it's not easy when it does. <laughs> or when it doesn't, even. Lynette is having a conversation with Rita, whoever that is, when Art's sister Rebecca shows up. Rebecca tells her that Art just got fired from his job at the community centre and says that those pictures that she saw were of his swim team and that he was super proud of those boys. And turning it into something dirty says more about Lynette than it does about Art, which I disagree with. But Lynette insists that she knows exactly what she saw. It turns out... He's also been spat on, they refused to serve him at the diner, and his tyre got slashed. Okay, well... Outside of church, I think. Yeah, in a church parking lot. Do you know what, Rebecca? Some people like to be spat on. So did you see Art's reaction? Because maybe he enjoyed it. Lynette apologises for the stress it's causing Rebecca, who says that she really doesn't need it right now, because, you know, she's very frail and she'll probably die. Mm. But that she has kids, so better safe than sorry. Or as long as you're safe, what's the matter who's sorry? Quite frankly, Rebecca, have you ever thought about just saying to Art... You know, if you truly believe that he's not a pedophile. Hey, Art, Art, honey, <laughs> have you ever thought about taking down the pictures of the little boys so that people don't get the wrong idea? But that's why they're in the basement, so she can't even see them in the first place. She probably didn't even know those photos were there until this whole thing started happening, and then Art basically had to think of a quick explanation. That's a, that's them. a good point. That's a good point. Uh, she probably didn't even know like know the extent of the photos. She thought it might have been like two or three photos here or there or everywhere, but not the extent. And she also didn't clearly doesn't know about that armchair. That's the thing that I'm harping on about, that fucking armchair, for him to just lay back and relax while he looks at these topless little boys. Indeed. So Susan's gone to visit Brie while Brie's baking, and she tells her that she's having Ian's parents over for dinner and that she wants to impress them. And Brie hilariously responds to this with, And you're cooking? <laughs> Susan then says that she needs some help if Brie isn't too busy, gesturing at the amazing gingerbread house that Brie is currently finishing. Oh no, these things practically build themselves. Um, this is a total lie. Gingerbread houses are notoriously difficult to build mm-hmm. for your average Joe, but for Brie, it just goes to show what a skilled baker she is. Yeah. She's literally just putting this house together like, easy peasy. <laughs> what the hell? She says that she could use the distraction, though, and tell Susan that she asked Orson to move out. We then have a very jarring cut to the next scene, almost like there might, might have been a deleted scene here, but who can say? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I do appreciate that finally Brie is going to someone about Orson. She's opening up to somebody about all of the problems that are coming out, as opposed to someone finding out a problem and taking it to Brie. It's Brie basically going to her friend and saying, I've had to do this, like, this is the issue. However, I'm not too happy about Susan's reaction, because when Brie was like, I could use the distraction, Susan kind of had this look like she wasn't actually interested. She'd already come over, she'd gotten what she wanted out of Brie, and she wasn't interested in anything else while she was there. And now Brie's just sort of opened up unexpectedly, and Susan's like, ugh, this is a real inconvenience. Well, that's very Susan for you. Maybe it was unintentional, maybe I just read too much into it, I don't know. Brie's not really the kind of person to open up very often, so maybe it was just a bit of a shock. Maybe, that's true, that's true. Brie's very, I'll hold this in. Mm. 
So we have our little jarring cart, and we see that Mike and Carlos are having breakfast while Edie shouts at Mike for getting caught burying the toolbox. Carlos also pipes up here and tells Edie to let the guy enjoy his breakfast, which really annoyed me because I was like, this isn't your house. What gives you the right to just walk in here and tell people what to do? He's Mike's best friend, babe. It's not How his- How dare you? This How dare you? his place. So it's Mike's best friend. It's as good as now. When a couple are having an argument, you don't get involved. This isn't really an argument. This is Edie just yelling at Mike and Mike sort of taking his licks. <laughs> and rightly so. I mean, yes. What's with Carlos's stupid attitude? We can yell at him after we've had our breakfast, Edie. Well, to a certain extent, I, I appreciate what Carlos was doing here because I was a bit like, yeah, if I was in Mike's shoes, I would want to at least just have a moment to eat breakfast and then we can discuss it. Well, then you shouldn't have tried burying the toolbox. But at the same time... If I was Edie, I would be reacting this way because I'd be pissed that Mike did this without consulting me as a partner. And as Edie, would you also not be pissed with Carlos right now for saying that? I mean... Let the guy enjoy his breakfast. I'd be like, excuse me, I am not Gabby. You do not boss me around. Actually, yes, I probably would. I'd be lying if I said, no, no, I wouldn't be irritated. (laughs) I would be really pissed at Carlos for saying that. He just winds me up. Amnesia Mike is just mind-numbingly dull. Like, where's the police officer murder Mike? Like, murderer Mike. We need him back. <laughs> Mike's not very interesting in this season, guys. No, he's really not. not. I mean, like, the storyline he's created, we've had created is interesting enough. Mm. But the character of Mike is no longer interesting. Yeah, I think he thrives with Susan. Yeah. She asks Mike directly if he killed Monique, but Mike is confident that he didn't. But they do get a bit worried when police walk up to the house. <gasps> Could this have anything to do with the toolbox? Who can say? I mean, I imagine so. So Brie is telling Susan all about the Orson and Alma drama, and Susan tells her, completely unironically tells her, that she can't let a man blind her to cold, hard facts. Remember that for later, guys. (laughs) Right before they both see Mike across the street being arrested. (laughs) Also, Brie's judgement being clouded by a man, that's her brand. That is very much Brie's brand. Right? It is. First there was Rex, then there was... George. (laughs) It's her brand. Then there was, what's his name? Peter. Peter? Peter. Peter Pan. So Karen gives them the gossip and tells them that Mike is being arrested for murdering Monique, which gives Brie a sigh of relief and a, oh, thank God, (laughs) which doesn't please Susan very much. Now, this is going to cause some friction. Oh, the ladies are going to argue. They are. There's going to be some tea, some scalding hot tea. It's going to be juicy. So Vern introduces Gabby to Amy's father, Mr. Pierce, or Bill you will right before right after sorry should i say gabby turning to Vern saying i'm always diplomatic yeah i'm always diplomatic i don't think you can trust me on this (laughs) they're going to discuss with him that they want to get rid of amy but gabby is distracted by how handsome he is and instantly goes into schoolgirl mode real daddy energy like hey mr pierce the minute he even says hi to her she's like (laughs) he is gorgeous like i would throw Vern under the bus just to get under him even Vern was professional here, though, in front of the hot man. Yeah. Get it together, Gabby. And that is surprising for a gay man. Mm. In front of, in, when we're put in front of a hot man, all professionalism goes right out the window. <laughs> Vern awkwardly tries to tell Bill that Amy doesn't really have what it takes for the pageant world. And when he asks Gabby to jump in for support, she just says, I have no idea where you're going with this. <laughs> and continues staring at the big hot guy. And we've got a clip. Well, as Gabby and I discussed... Amy has certain limitations, and her odds of winning are slim. Fern! (laughs) He is so competitive. I constantly have to remind him they're just kids. (laughs) (laughs) When did you lose the joy? Oh, I think you know. Wait, I'm I'm confused. Are you you dumping Amy? 
Of course not, Bill. Can I call you Bill? <laughs> it's just we feel that Amy would benefit from some private coaching. Maybe I could come to your house, say Friday, five o'clock. I mean, damn, look at Gabby using the situation to get herself a date. Right, I wish I had the confidence that Gabby has to just slyly get a date like that. Well, gay world, you just never know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you never know if you risk getting punched in the face by just asking. Exactly. I mean, poor Vern, though. Kind of threw him under the bus. Oh, yeah, but I would too. You're Mr. so P evil. Mr. Pierce was hot. I would. I have no problem throwing a person <laughs> under the bus to get laid. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> or at least I didn't. That's so before evil. I, before I got a boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. No problem. So, Mike is in jail, having been arrested for Monique's murder, the drama of it all, guys, and tells Edie, who's come to visit him, that they found traces of Monique on his ranch. Mm. Edie then decides that now is the time, well, she does admit that it's bad time in all fairness, but that she has to say it, that she hasn't been happy for a while, and that she wants to break up with him, and that it's totally not about the whole Mike going to prison for murder thing. Okay. I know you're going to think this is about the whole blood on the axe thing, but it's not. Right? She's all like, we should date other people. And Mike's like, you're telling me this now while I'm going to men's prison? I mean, this is shitty. Considering that Edie manipulated him into being with her, manipulated his feelings when he'd just come out of his coma, and then dumped him the minute he gets into jail. Edie, this is real shitty. If there's anything that 80s and 90s and even some 2000s films have taught me, it's that a lot of love can be done through manipulation. Yeah. And they this, always end up happy. This is even worse than when you walked around Susan's house and just like water canned gasoline all over it. This is even worse than that. Is it because she's not wearing a fur coat? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's because she's not wearing a fur coat. And it's also just because Mike is this poor dude that's just woke up out of this coma to suddenly find that he's suspect number one in a murder that he has no recollection of and he, the only person who claims to have cared about him has suddenly been like nah this is getting getting in too deep now in Edie's defense he's not been as interesting since he woke up from that coma maybe that's Edie's fault let's not blame Edie come on let's not be crazy I am blaming Edie <laughs> bitch is just leaving him there to rot and that is major shit no I'm just joking this is so awful <laughs> like he's even there like oh um can I borrow some money for a retainer and she's like I'm dumping you <laughs> <laughs> But hey, I mean, just because you're going to a men's prison doesn't mean you can't date other people, Mike. Maybe explore some other avenues. Right, there are still people that get married in prison. They get like married to their pen pals and shit. Right, also maybe explore some other avenues. Exactly, and don't knock gay sex until you try it, Mike. <laughs> exactly, hitting the nail on the head. We have a little time skip and Susan's come to visit Mike. He tells her that Edie broke up with him because he's going to prison, which they agree is pretty tacky. Yes, Susan called <laughs> her out. It was tacky as hell. And she offers to pay his bail. But also, let's not forget, Mike, this is the woman that, like, was cheating on you, was a skank the whole time in your right. head. Also, can we just, can I just say, his bail for a million. I'm not sure if that's, like, a lie. I'm not sure if he's just like, it's a million. Like, wanting to try and sort of almost test season and seeing exactly just whether <laughs> she cares enough or if she's just here to get the gossip like Edie would have. I don't think straight men do told. that. Told. Like, Edie would have told Mike that Susan just, she doesn't care about him. She only wants to gossip and shit. So now he's like, a million. Let's see if Susan actually cares. But then at the same time, he is an ex-cop killer and he's been in jail once before. So I'm not sure how that changes bail. Well, he might have been overemphasizing it. But also, they have um, somewhat damning evidence. So yeah, they probably don't, they're probably not going to really want him getting out on bail. Yeah, they're not going to post his bail for like 20 quid. <laughs> yeah, it's not like he's in prison for robin stealing a bag crisps. of crisps <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
So naturally, his bail's probably a bit high. Yes. He wonders why Susan isn't asking if he killed Monique, but Susan tells him that she knows he didn't, and they share a moment with a little hand-holding. Feelings are resurfacing, and you can tell by that plinky-plunky music that's going on in the background. Maybe Mike will be more interesting now. Maybe. Who can say? He just needs a little Susan in his life. Yeah. Gabby is having her private tutoring with Amy, but technically that's not actually happening, as Amy is practising throwing the baton outside and Gabby says that she has allergies so she'll just watch from the window. You. The grass and my allergies. <laughs> Whilst really she's just flirting with Amy's dad. Yeah. I don't like what Gabby's wearing in this scene. I don't remember. It's like it. a satin top with like a polka dot skirt and it's 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 not stunning. I mean this is what she's wearing for a hot date. A hot date. Mm. Yeah it's not stunning. Bill talks about being a single dad and then invites her out for dinner as a thank you for helping Amy. She says it's no problem helping Amy and watches her outside as the baton hits her in the face and she falls down. So Gabby just closes the blinds and tells him she's a special girl. They then continue to flirt and discuss how awful it is being single until Amy walks in to ask if they saw her catch the baton. They promise to watch this time, but she runs back in and catches them holding hands and she does not look happy. No, but see, Gabby's great with kids when she wants to be. The way she used to say, like, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed it. But Amy's pissed. Amy is pissed. Amy's not happy. You're stealing her dad. Amy could get a whole film to herself where she just sabotages all of her dad's romantic things. That would be brilliant. I would watch the shit out of that. Susan tells Ian all about the food she's making, but Ian knows that Brie is the one cooking the food. (laughs) Rewarmed souffle. She was like, oh, well, I'm going to rewarm it myself. And I'm just like, rewarmed souffle. Susan insists that she's going to be heating it herself. So I guess she wants a little bit of credit. Yeah. He then asks about the documents on the counter. And Susan says that Mike was arrested for murder and that she's helping him find a lawyer. She clearly sees how this looks to Ian and tells him that there's nothing to worry about as Ian is the one who gets to boink her. Ian, however, doesn't look convinced. And this will be a theme for the episode. For the foreseeable future. Well, yeah, for the foreseeable future. To be fair, in this episode, I kind of don't judge Ian for the way he reacts. No, not entirely. It's a little bit rash, but it's very understandable. Yeah. I do get it. Yeah, I mean, like, granted, I've just been slating Ian earlier for the way that he behaved with getting Susan to cook the meal, but... This is a fair view Yeah, of all things Desperate Housewives. Yeah, but I'm not here to be biased, unless it's about Gabby. Um, and so, therefore, I completely do understand Ian's reaction. Although I don't, I, I wouldn't react this way myself. I'd just, like, key your car. We now cut to our first poker night with the ladies in ages. I am glad Lynette calls it out at the very beginning of the scene, so that we don't specifically have to. She's like, it's been so long <laughs> since we've had one, and I'm like, well, it's about time someone calls it out. Yeah, because I was thinking it, and then Lynette said it. I swear we haven't had a poker game since Brie and Betty had that poker off in season two. Yeah, I think the last poker game was with Betty. The ladies talk about how long it's been since they last had a poker night, and Brie begins dishing out the cards, and soon the drama. Mm -hmm. Susan then sits at the table and completely destroys all of the positive atmosphere in the room in one foul swoop by asking Brie if she's spoken to the police yet, and told them that she thinks Orson murdered Monique. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you just called her Monique. What? You just called her Monique. Did I? Monique Harp. Brown cow stunning! I mean, I would be pissed at Susan, because Brie's clearly told Susan this, but there's no clarification that she's told Gabby and Lynette. She's just she clearly so hasn't. worried about Mike, right? Yeah, she's clearly not told Gabby and Lynette who their reactions in this scene were evident. It was a gag. 
Yeah, it was a gag to them. But Susan just comes in. She's like, so have you told the police that, you know, Orson's a cold-blooded killer? And then her other two friends are there like, great. Now I've got to explain shit. Yeah. In all fairness to Susan, I understand why she did it and why she didn't have much tact. She's been spending all day looking for lawyers and stuff and she's worried about Mike. I get it. Well, yeah, I know. But at the same time, there's a time and a place and, you know, we're there to chill and it up and get things back to normal. And now it's not the time to be talking about legalities and shit. Mm. Not even a bit of foreplay, Susan. No, right? She just went in dry. She just <laughs> completely went in dry. And that shit hurts. <laughs> things get a bit tense as Susan doesn't think it was Mike and thinks the fact that Monique's teeth were pulled out of her mouth leads to Orson being the killer. The dentist. But Bree believes that it could have been Mike as the DNA was on his wrench. Yeah. Susan really shouldn't be doing this right now because she should at least wait until after dinner to fall out with Bree. A hundred percent. Especially after you've told Ian exactly what you're going to have. And there is no way in hell you can now have that meal after you've fallen out with Bree <laughs> because that, you can't make that. Ladies both have a good point. They do. So who can say? But anyway, Gabby and Annette seem pretty gagged by all this and Annette tries to calm it. But Susan and Bree just keep on going, so Gabby and Annette just accept that they're not going to be playing cards anymore. Mm. And we've got a clip for this. Oh, yeah. They found Monique's blood on the wrench that Mike was trying to dispose of. I mean, that hardly screams innocence. Her teeth were pulled. You don't think that's worth telling the cops she was messing around with a dentist? Orson was slipping it to the dead chick. Mike is innocent. I know that in my heart. We all have convictions, Susan. I believe Mike's last one was for manslaughter. Okay. Okay, we've all made some excellent points and blown off a little steam. Whew, let's play some cards. Brie was fierce. <laughs> the smoothness of that read. We all have convictions, Susan. I believe Mike's last one was for manslaughter. <laughs> yeah, she came to play. What a fucking bitch. <laughs> well, well, actually, Susan came to play, but Brie was ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Brie won. Brie won that reading challenge. As you heard, Gabby and Annette were pretty gagged by all this, and Annette tries to calm it, but Susan and Bree just keep on going, so Gabby and Annette just accept that they're not going to be playing cards anymore. Bree then decides that she won't be cooking for her and Ian and his parents anymore, and tells Susan to let her know if there are any survivors after Susan's cooking. <laughs> Susan then tells Bree to let her know if there are any survivors after she gets back with Orson. <laughs> and if you get back with Orson, you do the same. Oh, ladies, calm down. I'm just pissed that we don't get to hear any of Gabby and Lynette's replies to Brie. Susan sneaks out and Brie's like, was I out of line or whatever? I'm so sorry you had to hear that. Was that, was that warranted or whatever Brie said? And then all of a sudden the sounds of them discussing like drift off as Susan starts to sneak around and get the key to Orson's. And I was just like, that's really pissed me off. Because you could have had some real good shit right there mm. of like Gabby and Lynette like, slagging off Susan or replying to Brie and being like, no, no, like I, Susan was way out of line. <laughs> so Susan pretends that she's left, but she just sneaks into the kitchen to steal a spare key from the cupboard and then she leaves. Yeah. So Lynette meets up with the neighborhood women and discovers that they're making big posters and they tell her that they're going to stage a protest in front of Art's house. Lynette is instantly concerned by this and says that they have no proof and that this all started from gossip she told Karen. Karen says that Lynette told her to spread the word, and Lynette responds saying that she just wanted everyone to watch their kids and be vigilant. The women seem concerned and ask whose side Lynette is even on, but Karen insists that they'd never have known about the creep if it weren't for Lynette, and that she's their hero. The irony of Art being the hero, and now suddenly it's Lynette. Right. 
But I just, is it really appropriate to use glitter for the word paedophile? Because something about that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm trying to make the word paedophile really stand out. Does anyone have any glitter? I, ugh. It's also funny because mums always have glitter and they use glitter for like all of their signs. And they always bitch about how much they hate it. But Lynette seems to um, be thinking that this might be getting a bit out of control. Yeah, perhaps she's like having reservations about her initial reaction now all of a sudden. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a bit out of left field, the reservations. She's like, I just wanted you all to be vigilant. But it's like, what, what did you really want, Lynette? I don't know. I feel like Lynette might now feel like she's overreacted now that she's resting and getting some sleep and she's not so tired. And Yeah, Lynette probably doesn't really know what she wants. No. And maybe she's kind of fallen for what Rebecca said. Yeah, I think she, she does probably feel guilty. For, um, Rebecca did her job. Yeah, because really. all you have to... Th- you just need to think for a second, what if he's not a paedophile? Exactly. But that's how they get you. Well, that's how they get your kids. <laughs> hide your kids, hide your wife. <laughs> <laughs> we cut back to Susan, and it turns out that the spare key she stole is for Orson's dental practice. She breaks in to do some investigating, but she gets interrupted when Orson walks in, because she's no Jessica Drew. So she hides in a closet while he sits on a chair and watches TV with a pizza. I mean, does Susan want to be in the jail next door to Mike? <laughs> she's going an awful long way to prove that her ex is innocent. And if Ian finds out about this, he's not going to be too pleased. In Susan's defence, let's not forget that Brie is dating someone that she thinks is a murderer as well. Well, yeah, I know, but that still doesn't excuse the breaking and entering. Right? No, because it's not like you can submit this evidence and be like, I found it when I was breaking and entering. <laughs> exactly. So it's completely like mishandled evidence anyway. She won't be able to use that. I got it from a reliable source. Me. <laughs> um... <laughs> And if Ian finds out, I, I I would have some questions. True. Although I have to say, the sort of clumsy, silly, haphazard detective vibe, I'm loving that. But in any other vibe, you'd hate it. Which Any other clumsy Susan kind of vibe, you'd hate it. But because it's clumsy Susan with a little bit of detective, you absolutely <laughs> love it. Are you accusing me? Are you of accusing like- me of nepotism? <laughs> Are you accusing me of only liking this because it's got detective vibes? Yes. I love detective vibes, but that is not true entirely that is complete and you know that you know that clumsy susan is my favorite susan moments you know that we've got hosting for it yeah do you remember only so that you can emphasize susan's embarrassments it's not because you love them it goes like this (laughs) yeah remember that yeah i do remember that i forgot it we haven't used it in ages we haven't used it in a (laughs) long time we're really bad at our stings at the moment we really are (laughs) so yeah susan is stuck in the closet and we've all been there So back at the place where the little girls do their modelling stuff, Amy's dad, Bill, drops her off and asks Gabby if she wants to go for a coffee after class, and she says yes. She then tells Amy that she's lucky to have such a nice dad, and Amy tells her to leave him alone, and that she doesn't want Gabby dating him. Gabby tries to talk to Amy on her level, but Amy tells her that she wants her dad to marry Sherry's mum, apparently because her and Sherry are best friends and they've got it all worked out. She then tells Gabby to get back in there and teach them to work the runway. That's what they're paying her for, right? This little girl is psycho. This little girl's sassy. Like, Gabby's there like, I'm not trying to replace your mom. And then she's like, well, I am. And I'm just like, Jesus, girl. (laughs) They've got it all figured out. They think this is the parent trap or something. How dare she come up against Gabby like that? Like, Gabby will take her the fuck down. (laughs) Well, obviously. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Susan is still stuck in that closet while Orson is still eating pizza. And then Brie walks in to talk to Orson and demand that he tells her everything, the full and honest truth, now that Mike has been arrested. Wait, wait. So Orson only didn't answer the phone because he thought that if he didn't answer the phone, he wouldn't end up getting a divorce from Brie because that's, you know, he thought that's why she was calling. It's not an illogical response, but I, it's not entirely illogical. I mean, 
did he just sit there and think, well, if I never answer the phone, then I'll never get a divorce. (laughs) (laughs) In all fairness, divorces are hard work, so he's probably right. It's not worth it. Just don't go, just don't get a divorce. Just stay unhappy. It's not worth it. We'll come back to that later, though, because now we cut to Gabby, who is left alone with Sherry, who is doing her stretches, and tells her that she's working so hard and that the girl's going to be dancing in pairs, and she's arranged for her to dance with her best friend Amy. Yeah! Sherry hilariously looks horrified by this turn of events and tells Gabby that she doesn't really want to dance with Amy, as Amy sucks. Oh my god, talk (laughs) about friendship. She feigns surprise and says, I thought you guys were like sisters. And Sherry says that they are but she still sucks and that this pageant is super important. It then gets a bit awkward as Gabby says that she already told Amy. She then says that she should just tell Amy the truth and that she'll understand. And Sherry asks, what if she doesn't? And Gabby says, well, friends come and go, but crowns are forever. That sounds like an opening line to Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. That sounds like an opening line to RuPaul's Drag Race. That's that's a Lisa Vanderpump line, you know, where they like turn and they have their openings and she's like, Friends come and go, but crowns are forever. (laughs) If the judges see me tripping all over that klutz, I'm never going to win. Damn. (laughs) Sherry just says it how it is. She does. Oh, poor Amy. Not even her friend likes her. Poor Sherry. Sherry wants to do well and she's in this awkward situation. No, I know. Gabby's (laughs) like a devious little snake manipulating the children. That's why, Gabby, you you manipulate them children. Only the children would fall for this, though. Yeah. Because Gabby is a model, not a model stroke actress. (laughs) Oh my god. Like, see, all, she does all of this just so she can get laid. And I admire that. Yeah. Kel's working for that. She is working mm. for that dick. Back at the dentistry, Orson <laughs> gives Brie all the gossip and tells her that he'd never loved Alma and that Gloria pushed them together and that he got her pregnant, but Alma had a miscarriage. All while Susan listens from the closet. I mean, this is all a gag. This is all gossip and a half. Orson's just pathetic. It is a bit pathetic. absolutely pathetic. Throwing all of the blame onto his mother like he isn't a grown-ass man. And then blaming Brie for him not being honest. Right. Like, absolutely spineless. So, Orson says that he felt trapped, but that he stayed with her, hoping he'd grow to love her, which I guess we can all relate to. We've all been there in some way or another. But that he felt in love with Monique. Mm. Mm. He explains that after his father died, his mother was all he had, but then Gloria saw this weakness and ran with it, and tells Brie that she has no idea how manipulative Gloria can be. He then asks what happens now, and Brie tells him that he's going to pack up his things and move back into her house, and then they're going to toss Gloria out on her anal ass. (laughs) So Orson is absolutely fucking pathetic for, like, throwing all the blame onto his mother like he's not just a grown-ass man, and then he's throwing all the blame on Brie for him not being honest. Like, he's absolutely spineless. And first he's like, oh, you know, I, I didn't leave the marriage because my mother thought that divorce was a sin and, and oh, she was all I had left after my dad died and blah, blah, blah. And then when Bree's like, well, why don't you just tell me this straight up, bitch? And then he's just like, well, you told me about Rex and it was important that you trusted me and you believed in me. And I was just like, don't throw, take some responsibility for your behavior, man. Also, there's a there's a lot of dissonance in what he's saying and hypocrisy. The way he's like, I needed you to trust me and believe in what I'm saying, so I lied the whole time. Right? <laughs> and it's just, I don't hell? think, Orson's like, I know how it sounds. And I'm just like, I don't think you know how it sounds, Orson. No, Orson, it sounds really bad. Because, because you're frankly, bringing up more excuses. So I don't think you know how it sounds because every time there's another excuse, you're, you're giving yourself another wet get out clause. Yeah, because what a regular human being would have done was gone through all of this before marrying the woman. Mm-hmm. But there you go. They're yeah. weird. The guy's weird. Yeah. 
While they're talking, Susan finds a box that says Orson's Spare Things and decides to investigate. And inside, she finds a wad of letters addressed to Orson from a mental hospital. She opens one and finds an admission letter of Orson's from when he was checked into the Elmridge Mental Hospital with psychological depression, as well as a photo of him and Gloria in front of the hospital. Oh my god, that old photo of Orson and his mother <laughs> with that hair on both of them. Oh my god. I mean, it's <laughs> so Orson's basically the new Zach Young. Yeah. The one who's going to have some sort of mental illness that they're going to make a really... They're going to represent it really badly. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Susan gets home to find Ian waiting for her, looking all nice in his suit, and she apologises for being late. She asks where his parents are, and he says that they got snowed in at the airport, so they're not coming. So Susan thinks it's all good, but Ian says that she's 40 minutes late and she didn't know that his parents won't come in and wants an explanation. And Susan apologises again, but says that she had an emergency. Ian then asks if this emergency had anything to do with Mike, rather pointedly. And Susan tells him that she thinks Orson killed Monique and presents to him the evidence that she found. It's not really evidence. No, it's not. She shows him the medical note for his admission into the mental hospital for over a year. But Ian doesn't really care, and he's angry that Susan blew off tonight as it was a big deal to him. Susan then says that she has to find a way to help Mike, as she's all he's got. But Susan, we need to stop acting like someone going to a hospital for treatment for a mental disorder disorder is convicting in any way. Yeah, I know, right? She had the same kind of reaction with Zach. Right. I don't want you going anywhere near that boy, Julie. And now all of a sudden she's like, oh, you know, I've got evidence because when Orson was younger, he went into a mental institution and that therefore means that he murdered this woman like 20 years later or however long. Right. Like, that's not evidence, Susan. That, that, that's evidence for another crime. This is really shocking behaviour, Susan. That's evidence for Susan's crime of breaking and entering, but it's certainly not evidence yeah. for Orson's crime of killing Monique. Susan is very nasty towards people with mental illness. Yeah, she's... Um... Yeah, she's not the most accepting no, person. She, she needs... Or understanding. She, she certainly has no she has no empathy or understanding towards it. She just acts like someone who's been treated for depression is some kind of it's some kind of proof that they're a dangerous person. Mm. But then again, that is a very twisted thing in media, unfortunately. It is. Mm. It is. Ian then, rather surprisingly, tells Susan that Mike actually has him now too and that he's going to hire the best lawyer in town to defend him and he'll pay every cent of his bill but on the condition that Susan can't see him anymore. Ooh, a sexy ultimatum. Love it. I wouldn't say it's a sexy ultimatum. No, I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) Susan asks why and Ian says that if she keeps seeing him then, well, basically they're going to fall in love with each other again and she'll have to decide who's heart to break. Ian's easy. (laughs) That's the problem. (laughs) Susan (laughs) says it's unnecessary, but Ian insists and bigs up the lawyer. He asks if Susan agrees to the deal, and she says yes. In all fairness to Susan, I'd probably say yes and then just break the deal anyway. Yeah. But, I mean, (laughs) I get that Ian's worried and jealous, but I do think that even this is a little bit too far. It is a bit far. Like giving an ultimatum to someone, like, you can't see that person, and if if you agree to never see them again, then I'll potentially in essence save their life really yeah the minute you give an ultimatum you've you've pretty much lost the relationship really you've lost all credibility right so who wants to be in a relationship with an ultimatum yeah who wants to be in a relationship with someone that's literally just like i forbid you to see this person right it's not sexy no it's not sexy be controlling in the bedroom not in life exactly exactly well said babe we're on the street and all of the neighborhood women are having their protest outside of art's house while lynette watches with tom he basically tells her, I told you so. 
and Lynette acts surprised by this turn of events, but Tom pretty much says that when you tell the villagers that Frankenstein's monster is on the loose, they're going to grab their pitchforks. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't exactly say it in that way. He says, you told everyone that Frankenstein is loose, even though Frankenstein is the doctor and not the monster, but never mind. We then hear the sound of an ambulance approaching. Yeah, those signs aren't very creative. They're just basic signs. Go on. Well, I, was just, I paused it to read the signs and they're just like, oh, move out, perv. And Where was the glitter? I saw no glitter. There was no glitter. No, I'm really maybe, disappointed in these mums. Well, maybe they didn't have any glitter in the end. She did say, does anyone have any glitter? I didn't hear a response. No glitter. So they're maybe, mums. Maybe nobody had any glitter. But they're housewives. They're mums. How yeah. do they not have glitter? I don't know. Maybe mums they ran put out. glitter on everything. Maybe they ran out and they didn't have time between protests to buy, buy more glitter. Do you know what I really don't like? Well, I don't like mixed glitter. Like I like individual glitter, but you know when people mix glitter around, it doesn't look very nice and colourful to me. It looks kind of messy and gross. Oh, okay, like different coloured glitter. Yeah, like all, yeah. like if you put all of the colours into one tray, mixed them up and then used it. Oh, yeah. Because it doesn't look rainbowy and pretty like you'd expect. No, you just have to have a little bit of patience and do like, if you want ra- the rainbow effect, do strips. Exactly. You just have to have a little bit of patience. Or, Stop being lazy, guys. If you want random different colours all over the place, you need to construct it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You can't just mix the glitter because then it just looks like a brown mess. Yeah, pretty <laughs> Basically. much. Basically. Yeah. Brown glitter. No, thank you. Might as well have white glitter. Right. Or black glitter. Oh, I oh. mean, I love black glitter. Mauve glitter. <laughs> anyway. Back at the modern studio again, Gabby watches as Amy and Sherry have a fight. <laughs> Sherry asks Amy, don't you want me to have a chance? <laughs> and Amy just says, I hate you. Don't ever talk to me again. And storms off. Gabby then phones Mr. Pierce, or Bill. Can I and, call you Bill? <laughs> and asks him on another date with a big grin on her face. Because she won. And I did say, did I not? Gabby will take her down. It's Chloe Moretz in many other episodes. I can't remember. I think this is the only one she's in. It's a shame because in every scene, and especially this one, she was such a mood. Just when she's like, don't you want me to have a chance? <laughs> You're so selfish, Amy. <laughs> I mean, oh, bless. I can't believe Gabby's just destroyed this friendship. Oh, they were like sisters. They were. <laughs> can't be that crazy close, can they? And just like sisters, they fell apart. They did, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It happens. But go on, Gabby. You get your man. Right. You do you. We cut back to Art's house and the ambulance has pulled up to take away Rebecca, who apparently had a cardiac arrest. Art comes out of the house with a bag, and a man proceeds to chuck a rock at him while the crowd screams at him to leave. Lynette is appalled by this behaviour, and how everyone's acting, and tells them that they can't do this to people, and asks everyone to leave. She then runs up to Art to tell him that she's sorry, but he shrugs her off before getting into the ambulance, and they drive away while the crowd seems to follow, and Lynette is left, on her own, looking guilty. Yeah. The crowd's just there watching Rebecca get taken by the ambulance, like, what she deserves i'm not going to talk about this yet but the episode ends with lynette having really messed things up yeah lynette really has messed things up it's it's not a good look lynette i mean how was she to know in her defense she wasn't to know that it was going to take this sort of turn but it's just the the wildfire of gossip yeah yeah and i I think lynette may have unintentionally made things worse unfortunately (laughs) Brie and Orson are packing up glorious things, all while Gloria tries the whole, you shouldn't do this, this is a mistake, what about the grandchildren, blah blah blah. Orson says that he's come clean and told Brie everything, but Gloria says that he still has some secrets that he wouldn't want getting out. But Orson finally seems to have found an edge, and he's like, but you also have some secrets too, mom. 
Which is strange because she would have had those secrets for a while. They're not like new secrets. So why hasn't he just brought those up before? Because Gloria rightfully was calling out for him being too much of a pussy to bring it up. Yeah. Until this moment. So there's like a little standoff between the Hodges. Right. Gloria then makes a phone call saying to someone that Bree's taken him back and asks the person to meet her on the corner in an hour. I reckon it's Susan. On her flip phone. I reckon she's called Susan. They both want Orson gone. She's like, shit. That would be an ally. It would be an ally. I would watch that team up, Susan and Gloria, together, (laughs) taking on the world. (laughs) But who's on the phone? We'll find out. Yeah, we will find out. Okay, so we're coming to the end. And we've got one of the spookiest scenes in Desperate Housewives history. (laughs) Yeah, I would have to agree. This is a very unsettling scene. It's really kind of like uncomfortable to watch in fact in the top three this is one and so is her in art's basement yeah art is packing his car and then walks over and says that she heard about rebecca on the news and that she can help with any funeral arrangements he says that she must be feeling really guilty and she says that she is and can't express how sorry she is so we can rebecca's dead yeah no she did oh miss keisha she also does her hand on the heart act in here. She does. She does. She does her like, ah, if you just knew how sorry I am. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hand on heart. <laughs> Art then tells Lynette that in a weird way, he should be thanking her as his sister was a wonderful person. But because he had to look after her, he could never let himself slip and do something that would hurt her. But now he's free and it's all because of her. Yeah, I just don't get why Art needed to say this. Because Lynette was going to turn and walk away, and she would have been none the wiser. Like, she would have just felt guilty and dealt with it. Like, she would would have just, she would have lived with it. And I know the audience needed to get some form of conclusion from this storyline. You know, is he, is he not? What, what, what is it? But it kind of just felt like it was a little bit of a dumb move from Art. Because he could literally have just been like, all right, bye, Lynette. It's really nice to, bye, Nina. (laughs) Yeah, but he wants to really get her now. Yeah. Because now, this is going to plan her mind forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That time that she let this dangerous man get away. Actually, not just get away, but kind of release him. Right? You had this poor innocent woman die. And then you release the pedo into the world. <laughs> what have you done? Lynette, this is possibly the worst thing any housewife has ever done. And we say that a lot. But this is possibly the worst thing any housewife has ever done. We say it every other episode. Because it affects, like, potentially millions of people. You've just inadvertently killed a woman and then released a pedophile onto the streets. <laughs> Gosh. I get that Lynette feels bad. But she needs to learn to not forget that she saw what she saw. And he is what he is. If anything, I think this is also teaching Lynette, well, firstly, to be careful with how she proceeds with things, um, not to particularly, I don't know if overreact is the right word, but also maybe trust her instincts as well. Yeah. Because she was doubting herself, but she was actually right. She was right. There are yeah. some things that you, your brain isn't convincing you of, and mm. it is just probably true. Oh, yeah. We've got some really dark music playing while this happens. And Lynette says that he can't stay here, but he tells her that he's leaving. She asks where he's going, and he doesn't tell her. Instead, just telling her to take care of that beautiful family of hers. Oh, sorry, I gave myself... Oh, it's chills, it's chills. I gave myself chills just saying it. (laughs) It's so creepy. And that is the last that we see of Art. And I would like to applaud Art. The actor? For the, like, the acting. Um, I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head now. Matt Roth? 
Yes, thank you, Matt Roth. I would like to applaud him for his acting because he did phenomenally, especially in his last moments, like this last scene with him where we really get to see the the real side of art, the, the side that isn't held back because of his sister. It was fantastic acting. Mm, like, really, really creepy. Really chilling. It, like, it, it kept you so engaged. You, you didn't want to listen, but at the same time, you didn't want to turn away. Yeah, desperate saying afraid to get dark when they want to. Right. This is possibly my favourite moment of the episode because we get that disturbing scene at the end and it's like just the way he says beautiful family. Obviously, it's this like creepy pedo. (laughs) And then the camera pans down to um, a bunch of choir boys. Yeah, in front of um, a Father Christmas ornament thing. Don't think I didn't notice that shot, Desperate Housewives. I noticed that pedo to choir boys and Santa. Like, I noticed it. Yeah. The writers were like, should we be subtle? And then Mark Cho was like, no. (laughs) Down with Catholicism. (laughs) The episode then ends as Mary Alice narrates about why we all love Christmas. Not because of curling up with eggnog, kissing under the mistletoe, or receiving a present from that special someone. And we see shots of Edie drinking some eggnog and looking out of a window. Susan kissing Ian under the mistletoe, and Gabby receiving a present from Bill. Mary Alice then says it's not because of any of those things. People look forward to Christmas because it's a time for miracles. And we see Gloria approaching a car on the street. And when the person in the car winds down the window, it's Alma. Yes, Alma. Oh, what a queen. What a gag. Right, and she's here to fuck shit up. So she's all like, Gloria, tell me, what's going on? What have you heard? Dish, dish, dish. Right, I almost gave Alma, almost gave Alma the gayest moment award (laughs) for literally the fact that she sits there in the car, rolls down the window, and immediately the first words out of her mouth are her demanding Gloria to tell her what's been going on. And (laughs) Gloria's like, shut up and telling her everything. And I'm just like, fuck, yeah, you've just rocked up on the street and you're taking the most badass woman on this street right now. And you're like... Who the fuck are you? Tell me what's been going on. Right. (laughs) And in case it wasn't surprising enough or you forgot all about Alma, (laughs) Gloria makes it nice and obvious and says, hello, Alma. Yeah. Even though everyone will have recognised Alma. Because she's in the previously for every single episode. (laughs) Right. We didn't need Gloria to say, hello, Alma. (laughs) Alma. I think she's just doing the Disney villain thing. Yeah. Hello, Alma. So now it's going to get exciting because Alma's back. Yeah, WTF. And how long is Alma going to remain back, like, hidden? Like, how long is she going to be sneaking around before it's common knowledge that Alma's alive and and here and Orson didn't kill her? Also not gone missing. And Gloria's aware of this. Yeah. And so she's just let her son believe that his wife's gone missing and potentially nearly taken the fall for the murder of his wife. Even though she loves Alma. It's so weird. What's happening? Is she getting Orson back, perhaps? Because she was not happy that Orson cheated on Alma with Monique. In the previous episode, she was like, she broke Alma's, or he broke Alma's heart and mine, all for his precious Monique. So maybe she's getting, maybe it's like a duo thing, like they're both getting Orson back for the affair. They've devised a whole plan. Yeah, maybe. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that is where the episode ends. So we're now going to move on to the part of the podcast where Joel is going to give us the gayest and straightest moment of the episode, which is not something that I'm going to explain. So Joel, what do you have for the gayest moment? So for the gayest moment... This award goes to the woman that wanted to glitter the word (laughs) paedophile. Because that's gay energy right there. I, I want to take something dark and awful and horrible and make it look so fabulous. Like the guy from Pocahontas. 
Yes. See how I glitter. Exactly, right? <laughs> so he's taking like genocide and he's just like, oh, everyone's going to love me because I glitter, bitch. And she's going to be like, oh, everyone's going to love this sign because it's glitter. Right? But he's a pedophile. I'll throw some glitter on it. Yeah, it's right. Fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so um, plus it really commend her for wanting to make the word pedophile pop. Like I yeah. commend that. What do you have for your straightest moment? So my straightest moment... goes to Ian for demanding to know where dinner is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the minute Susan walks in. Where's like, dinner? Where's dinner? <laughs> so, it, congratulations, Ian. You exceeded my expectations, mm-hmm. and you managed to look straight for a brief second. You poor, poor thing. <laughs> I know, right? Um, plus, I just think that's that's total macho energy right there. Oh, yeah. Getting home like, oh, yeah, babe, where's dinner? So, and then the jealous... Sexy ultimatum. Yeah. Are you kidding? Straight moment. Yeah. Straight. Totally. So, um, bravo, Ian. Um, and now we move on to B segment four, best and worst parent, which I'm not going to explain. So, B, who do you have for your best parent? My award for. Best parent of the episode. I gave this to Lynette for getting that damn Peter off her streets. And killing his sister. <laughs> and killing <laughs> his sister so she doesn't have to have an awkward conversation about disabled people or something. Um, yeah, so, yeah, okay, bravo Lynette for doing God's work. I guess so. You know, I didn't actually write down best or worst parent, and I thought, I'll just talk about the episode with you, and we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what comes to mind at the end. Okay, so, who do we have for worst parent? My award for... Worst parent of the episode... I'm going to have to give it to Gloria. Worst parent. Okay, yeah. Because what kind of a parent lets someone believe that their partner's dead? (laughs) Gloria. Exactly. (laughs) Gloria is the kind of parent that would do that. (laughs) It's not necessarily the best parenting, at least for where this episode stands. If it turns out in a future episode that they did it for a really good reason and it was all good parenting, maybe we'll reevaluate. Yeah. Maybe we will retract that award. But for now, Gloria, congratulations. You are the worst parent for season three, episode 10. Yes, for now. Mm. For now. And that was the end of the episode. And that's the end of everything that we have to discuss. Yeah. So, Joel, where can people find us on the socials if they want us to discuss things further? So we can be found on Instagram at Boyfriends Review. And you can find us on Twitter at BFS Review. We've also got email, which is boyfriendsview at outlook.com. And our artwork is done by Louis you can find on Instagram at DocRedMonkDesign, where you'll find a link to his Etsy page. Join us next week. We'll be back in your ear holes with Season 3, Episode 11. No fits, no fights, no feuds. That's a strange title. It's a great title. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, um, we will see you then, guys. See you then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.